Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is portfolio manager Shritella, who manages several portfolios, including Fidelity Corporate Bond Fund and Fidelity Tactical Fixed Income Fund. He discusses the Bank of Canada's decision to raise rates, the effect on Canadian mortgages, and where he sees opportunity within fixed income markets. Shri explains to host Pamela Ritchie that while the increase was a bit of a surprise, the rationale behind it is consistent with historical trends. Despite recent rate increases, Shri says that the economy still looks strong due to various structural factors causing a delay in their impact. Shri says the high leverage and mortgage debt of the Canadian consumer is a concern, but he adds that the nature of rollovers and refinancing means it will take several years before the impacts of rate increases are fully felt. This podcast was recorded on July 14, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's begin with sort of uh, the dust has settled in terms of people have actually seen, of course, what what the decision was. We saw this hike. Uh, I guess let's ask if you were surprised in any way. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the latest move, I would say, wasn't as much of a surprise as the one um, on the previous meeting. And and obviously, because that's partly because they did telegraph that they were back on this path towards raising rates incrementally again. Um, I think the last one did come as a bit of a surprise because the bank one had signaled that they were planning to sort of be on hold for a while. And um, the thought was that they would wait and see how the data would develop. I guess the key thing is, if you think about what's changed, it's not necessarily that surprising. Um, you know, growth has been stronger than expected. The Canadian consumer uh, has been resilient and spending actually went up in the first quarter. Um, and uh, you also have uh, had an uptick in housing after it coming off uh, from its peak. And so all of those things have, have shown that inflation is going to be stickier, as, as I think I've mentioned in the past, and that uh, and even the bank acknowledged yesterday that um, that, or this week that uh, that inflation would likely be elevated for a longer period than they had originally anticipated. So based on that, I don't think what uh, what I had anticipated is that rates would stay higher for longer, uh, not so much that they would continue to increase. So I guess on the margin, the increase was a bit of a surprise, but the rationale behind it, when you look at it, it, it shouldn't have been a surprise. So, so we're, there is a lag. And uh, I guess that's what's being experienced, which is which is why the inclination is to put it higher. Um, but you know what what are the consequences of when the lag finally finally comes to an end, and we see the consequence? I mean, how, are you worried about that? Yeah, I mean, the, that's the one big question that everyone's been asking. You know, you've seen rates go up by um, 475 basis points from the lows in a pretty short period of time. And uh, and yet the economy still seems to be fairly strong. 
And so I, I think that there will, can, will be an impact. It's just, if you think about some of the structural factors that are delaying that, um, that's sort of the key thing to think about. So one, everyone talks about how levered the Canadian consumer is and that higher rates should have an impact. But if you think about mortgage, land mortgage borrowing is the biggest debt on most, uh, for most consumer debt. And if you think about that, um, you know, with the nature of Canadian mortgages rolling, if you think about the average mortgage being five years generally, or three to five years, you're going to have roughly 20% of the mortgage stock roll over and refi in any given year. And so that means it's going to take five years before everyone starts to feel that impact. The other was variable rate mortgages. And uh, we, what we've seen, and I'm sure everyone's read about, is the notion that just because you're interest payment, it's, the interest rate has gone up. A lot of people still have fixed payments that won't go up until the equity in their home sort of deteriorates and, um, or, and or they have to refinance. So again, there's gonna be a, an additional play. When you look at the corporate sector, then you have companies that have been in much better shape um, and don't really have any near-term refinancing needs and are not immediately impacted by higher rates either. And so. So all of those factors means that the shock of higher rates is going to take longer to, to really impact. Um, so, and then when you say, if you say it's a year or two from now where that impact finally hits, that's a long way out to really think about where rates are gonna be and, and the whole landscape can change considerably at that point in time. Um, okay, well, let's dig into sort of what that might look like, but but in the immediate, and we might come back to this in a couple of different ways, What what is the case for fixed income? It it actually seems like the economy is powering through, doesn't it? It's sort of, so it brings you back to this question of with volatility, it looks like the economy is kind of fine. So what is the case for fixed income at this point? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we, we, we've alluded to and talked in the past about the vulnerabilities. And so fixed income, as always, have, generally, with notwithstanding sort of the last couple of years, have been a good shock absorber to volatility. And um, and if you think about now, you're getting paid to be in fixed income, whereas a couple of years ago, you weren't earning anything in the fixed income markets. And so while the economy is going strong and things look good and risk assets could do well for a, a period of time, you know, the if you look back historically at fixed income, there, in the last 40 plus years or probably longer than that, we've had four years where fixed income has had negative returns. And of those four, two were in the last two years. And so when you look at historical periods, the, the reason fixed income, the times when fixed income has negative returns is because you have a rapid increase in rates in a very short period of time, and you don't have enough yield to compensate you for that increase. If you look at the backdrop now, Rates have already made their rapid move higher. They could incrementally move up, but you are now getting paid more than enough to compensate you for that. And given that we can't time the inflection point in the economy and that there could be an impact uh, from these higher rates down the road, um, it warrants the case to be moving into fixed income because now you're getting paid for that protection and paid your way. It's so it's so interesting. So how would the Canadian fixed income set of opportunities for investors here on this side of the border um, line up versus fixed income opportunities in other parts of the world? Again, this is sort of divining the the case for Canadian fixed income ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know generally um, fixed income across the, the globe looks more attractive because of higher rates. 
but Canada, um, I think as a, as a market to invest in is the positives are, uh, are partly the backdrop of having a good, stable, strong economy. Credit, um, you know, from a corporate sector is very solid. Um, if you think about, and then if you break it down and look at actually specific markets, spread markets in Canada for corporate bonds have actually lagged the outperformance of other markets. So we have uh, lagged investment grade bonds in the U.S. Um, you know, the high yield market in the U.S. and globally has been much more resilient and outperformed. And so I think that that makes Canadian fixed income uh, more attractive and just the stability overall of Canada. Um, I think makes for uh, makes it uh, an attractive uh, in, uh, investment opportunity. So interesting. So when you when you take a look ultimately at some of the the growth stories, but particularly the Canadian growth story. I mean, I, I was going to go global first and sort of say, what do you think about China? And maybe we'll get to that because it seems to be a a real unknown at this point, whether it's going to provide growth or, or really not, not at all provide growth um, to the global economy. In the Canadian context, it's no secret that it seems the government policy for growth is immigration. Um, yeah. And, you know, I guess hopefully that will work. Do, do you see that working? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things that are underpinning growth in Canada. So immigration is by and far the, is probably one of is the biggest right now. Um, you know, you had over a million immigrants over the last 12 months. Um, I think it was about 1.2 million to be exact. And that's really been a big boost to, to uh, and that's been the, the increase in the population in Canada. So that's a big boost to consumer spending. It's gonna support housing. Yeah, it's going to create more labor supply, and a lot of those immigrants are skilled uh, immigrants, so that that's going to be positive. And so, when you see these big job gains, um, uh, that's actually supported by the amount of immigration that we have coming in. Um, the other thing that's underpinning that growth, in addition to immigration, is just the fact that there was a lot of stimulus, and this isn't unique to Canada, but if you think about the amount of savings that people have built up over the last two years. Um, that's been a big boost and people are still spending down that savings. Now, savings rates have fallen back to pre-pandemic levels, but people are still saving. So people point to the fact that the savings rate has fallen considerably. But if you, if you think about the math behind that, if you're still saving money, it means you haven't, you're not eating into your savings. Now, there's, there's nuances to that and we could probably have a whole conversation about that separately. But if you break it down by income quintile, then really most of that savings is in the top income earners and you are starting to see lower income and middle income people spend down that savings. And that's something we'll have to watch for as that becomes more prevalent because that's the other thing that could lead to a, a bigger slowdown down the road. Clients are starting to talk about runaway inflation and interest rates, kind of like the early 1980s. Um, they've seen rates go up so many times and had gotten used to lower rates for you know 20 years, roughly. Um, their fears are becoming a bit of a challenge. What would you say directly to address some of the fears about the inflation slash rates? Yeah, so I, I would agree that that is a concern to think about. And I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the argument that there will be runaway inflation, but I do think that there, it's a valid concern. I think to, to alleviate that, the one thing I would say is that the central banks across the world, especially Canada and the Fed, have been adamant that fighting inflation is their number one priority. 
And so, you know, we talked about, we've, uh, we've talked about already now about how there's still some risks down the road, but, and I'm sure the central banks and the Bank of Canada are very aware that these rate increases will have an impact, but they are doing their hardest to, they can, they, what they're starting to raise rates again, because they are worried about those inflation expectations, because we are seeing inflation fall. It's now going to, by the end of this year, hit the top end of their of their sort of inflation target. Ideally, they want to get it to two percent, but it's going to settle in somewhere around three, probably by the end of the year. But they want it. They want they want to squelch any sort of concerns about expectations of inflation going higher. So they're going to err on the side of over tightening, um, which will protect, uh, which will. Ideally, if, if things work the way they should, that will sort of um, bring demand down and prevent that runaway inflation. So, and I think the, the Bank of Canada's move is a perfect example because they were on hold and things haven't picked up considerably, but they are not on the trajectory they like. And so they're back on the rate hiking path. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, just have you walk us through that. Um, so do you anticipate the, the neutral rate to remain higher looking forward do you also anticipate we'll be in a period of, of positive real yields um yes so i think that we will i think the neutral rate will likely need to be higher just because for the structural reasons we that we discussed but um and then the bank of canada has um their target has drifted up a little bit over the last little while but they're still targeting the nominal neutral rate to be in the two to three percent range um, and I, I, my sense is it would probably be towards the higher end of that range. Um, and, um, and sorry, I, I lost the last second part of the question. Oh, just um, ultimately, if you think that, um, we're going to be in for a period um, of possible real yields. Yeah. yeah. So I think that ultimately uh, I would expect that we, they, they'll be moderately positive, but I do think we will get to that period of, of positive real rates over time. Yes. Okay. You have a, uh, an amazing, um, kind of dual reasoning or, or discussion or, or kind of explanation for why so many rate cuts were built into the market this year. The expectation of rate cuts uh, is kind of gone now, depending, but um, but it was very strong for a long time, even through the first quarter of this year, that rate cuts were coming very quickly. Um, that's reversed a bit, but why did that take so long? Bond investors are sophisticated investors. Why did they not see kind of that inflation was going to either stay here for longer or rates were going to have to stay steady or go up. Like, what was that? Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting because we've had this conversation a number of times as to why things were being priced the way they were. If you surveyed a lot of the investors and institutions that we talked to, and I don't think anyone we talked to expected rate cuts to, um, to manifest over the second half of this year or next year. And, so and I think that's, all those people that so, did expect that. Right. So, so I think there's two things to that. There, so there are still a number of people that are in the mindset that if the central banks aren't raising rates, they're cutting rates. The assumption is that incorrectly or rightly or wrongly, there's the assumption is that they're either raising rates or they are turning around and, and cutting rates. And, and not, there is some truth to that because often there is some overshooting and they need to correct and, um, but that being said, so there's some notion of, okay, if they're stopping raising rates around this time, then that means rates have to start falling. So that's the one, one thing. I don't put a lot of credence into that. I think the bigger thing was flow driven and technical. So um, if you think about how yields became much more attractive, we were seeing a lot of money coming into fixed income. 
um, not only on the retail side, but especially on the institutional side, pension plans reallocating money into fixed income. And so that those flows, and especially if you think about pension plans that have longer dated liabilities and need to invest in fixed income longer duration, you start to see them buying 10 and 30 year bonds. Uh, and those flows were what was driving, one driving further inversion of the yield curve, but also um, making it, and as the yield curve inverts, it starts to look like it's pricing in more, uh, more cuts in uh, down the road. And so that, I think it was really more flow driven than real than expectations. That's fascinating. So fascinating. Okay, back to uh, housing. Great question. Housing is not keeping pace with immigration, which we discussed just a minute or two ago. Um, how would that ultimately affect mortgage rates? Do you think the fact that housing there just isn't, you know, it doesn't appear to be enough of it? Yeah. So, um, so I think it's a good question because we we often don't put a direct link through to, we kind of think about mortgage rates as a function of the economy and, and the Bank of Canada rates and then housing demand. It, it's, there is obviously a, a, a linkage, but it, it's, it's not as simple as, okay, um, you know, you're going to buy something in a store and the more people want to buy it, the, the store raises the price, right? Yeah. So, um, but, uh, but I think that immigration will be a boost to housing because you have, um, uh, obviously increased demand and the amount of construction and uh, resale uh, and people putting their houses for sale, the, the amount of supply is just not enough to keep up with the demand. And so I think that's a big, um, uh, a big factor that's going to be supportive of housing. You know, where it will feed through is if housing continues to be resilient and strong, then that's going to be a boost to the consumers, a boost to the economy, and then you'll start to potentially see increased rate hikes and which could filter through to, uh, to higher mortgage rates. Um, so I think there is, um, there is some risk to that, um, but I also think that affordability is going to be something that tempers how much housing increases. Um, and while you will have this boost from immigration, um, we've seen that as things go up higher, you start to see the market slow down a little bit just because affordability is getting pressured quite, uh, had been very uh, um, had been pressured over the last couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, do you think that the Bank of Canada is, uh, would be making a major miscalculation with some of these rapid rate increases to compensate for keeping rates too low in the past? Um, so, I mean, on the margin, I would say that they probably could wait. Um, but I think it gets back to this notion of inflation expectations. That's what they're really worried about because inflation has come off. You know, you look at inflation at 3%, it's still high, but it's not 8% like it was. That's going to scare everyone. But at the same time, they're still worried about inflation expectations. And if they don't get those under control, that's where you get the real risk. And so while I think that maybe they don't need to be raising rates, Significantly, I think it's not necessarily miscalculated because they they want to err on the side of being too aggressive than not aggressive enough because that's when you run the risk of potential uh, inflation expectations increasing and maybe and then sort of I don't want to say runaway inflation but there's a risk that you uh, there's a, a loop there that gets uh, uh, pushed so so I think that. Um, I think what they're doing is justified and, and they did a great job of explaining why they're doing it. 
Um, will it be more than they need to? That's a possibility, um, but I think it's something they have to do at this point in time. Yeah, it's sort of the, the lesser two evils, I guess, from their perspective. Um, tell us a little bit about positioning, Sri. Um, so ultimately, you've, you've kind of laid the foundation of where we are, incorporated the fact that we had another rate rise on Wednesday. Um, tell us about positioning. Do you, do you go into sort of the higher yield areas uh, on a more short-term tactical basis? Like what areas do you like within fixed income, Canadian fixed income? Yes, so so the way we we're looking at, at the market now, as I said, over the next, let's say six months, we're still constructive because of the backdrop and it's gonna take longer for some of these risks to play through. So it does warrant having exposure to risk, uh, riskier bonds and, and stuff that's a little bit higher yielding. But that being said, given where yields and spreads are, we don't have to have that much risk in to have a good yield or a good return on our portfolio. So we're actually running our portfolios at the lower end of their historical risk profile because again, you're not gonna be able to time the market and there is some caution warranted going forward. So as I mentioned, we're getting paid to wait and be defensive because of where yields and spreads are. So we're still earning a good yield and our active funds are earning well above the, the benchmark yield. And um, and so, so from that aspect, we don't have to have a lot of risk. And now what that allows us to do is keep some dry powder. So when we get pockets of volatility, um, we will be able to add add to that positioning. The other thing we're favoring is as opposed to having broad market risk, uh, we are we're picking and choosing specific names and sectors that we think look more attractive um, because just on a relative value basis. So if there's much more security selection involved than sort of more broad market exposure in this environment than we might have if you go back to sort of March, April of 2020, when everything got extremely cheap and you just wanted to have exposure to the market. Uh, now we, we're trying to be more thoughtful about where that exposure is. Well, tell us about the sector. Is, is there some nuance you can provide there? Yeah, so over the last couple, last year plus, we've seen a lot of compression in spreads. Um, so we are favoring more higher quality defensive sectors or idiosyncratic ones. So financials stand out. Um, but, you know, Canadian banks, and we had the bit of a, the mini banking crisis in March that really impacted uh, valuations in the banking sector. If you go back to the previous year, we had a, a, a massive amount of bank supply, both in, the can, in Canada and the U.S., and that pressured spreads. So on a relative basis, uh, Canadian bank uh, bonds had underperformed the rest of the broader corporate market. And you're talking about very high quality um you know companies that uh, have strong ratings stable capital in fact you know regulation is is increasing capital requirements and um and so while they're in the, about the u.s or canada i mean in the u.s they're obviously so in the u.s it's the u.s is where it's front and center you know canada's always been a bit ahead of the game so their regulatory environment has always been a little more restrictive um there's always a risk that the regulation spills over and and, and enters into canada as well um, but again, as a bond investor, that's a good thing to see. Maybe not if you're not if you're an equity investor, it's potential to slow down the growth of the banks. But uh, as as, bond, as everyone knows, bond investors like slow growth because it means uh, it means it's the things are stable and steady. And uh, um, and so so the, the banking sector is an area we like. 
Um, you know, you could argue there's pockets of the real estate sector that have been, that look attractive. You know, obviously everyone talks about office and how that's um, uh, a, a tough spot to be in. And, and I wouldn't disagree with that, but there are a lot of uh, real estate, uh, uh, a lot of companies in the real estate realm that focus on more on retail and so on. Those are all doing great. Um, so there's, there is pockets like that. And then, you know, utilities, uh, provincial bonds, you know, those are very stable defensive sort of type sectors that, uh, that, that look pretty uh, attractive as well. Tell me a little bit about if you were going to say um, the economy might be okay, equities, the consumer might be okay, equities might be an interesting place to be. Now, I don't know if that's, those aren't going to be your words, but, but it might be what some investors are thinking based on what they've been watching in the markets. I guess the question is, why bonds now? And if, if you got into bonds, say six months ago or, or whatever it was, why stay in bonds now? Yeah, so um, I, I mean, as I said, you know, I think the backdrop for risk assets over the next little while is still somewhat constructive, but the problem is timing the inflection point of when things turn is really difficult to do. And and I think a lot of people would agree with the fact if you look at the way markets behave, they tend to grind higher and improve and, and go up, but then when things turn, they turn very quickly and they and and, and they move very rapidly. And so um, and we talked about how you weren't getting paid to be in bonds a couple of years ago, but now you're actually getting paid to wait and to have that protection in a portfolio. So because, you know, when things turn, you're not going to be able to, to make that shift. And, and the fact that you're getting paid to have that protection and be in bonds right now, um, I think that makes the case for at least increase in, all in allocation. Maybe you're not completely shifting things over, but you know it, it makes warrants having that protection in a portfolio. The other is the notion that if we're even if rates go higher from here, um, it definitely feels like we're on the tail end of rates going up. We're not going to see that 400 basis point change in the overnight rate over the course of a year and a half or plus. Um, you know, it's going to be incremental. And given that you're now earning four and a half to five and a half percent on a bond fund, depending on what type of fund you're in. Um, at least, um, that means that yield is going to more than offset any sort of incremental uh, increase in yields from from this point. So I think that that's what makes the case for uh, being uh, shifting in. And if you've already made the shift, it, it it points to why you should stay the course. Yeah, okay, fantastic. That's a great question. Let's. Um, be wonderful to get your take on this. So would it be, asks this investor, would it be beneficial for housing in Canada to replicate U.S. housing mortgage financing? So five-year renewal mortgages versus for 30 years. You know, what would it take for Canada to implement a, a different method, something more along the lines of that method? That's a, that is a great question um, and one that will probably stump me to some extent. But um I, I mean, I think there are advantages and disadvantages. I mean, generally, um, you know, if you if you think about the math behind mortgages, generally, um, shorter-term borrowing, while it, there are risks associated with it because of the refinancing, you tend to be better off in most environments by having shorter terms to your mortgages because. Rates don't have to be as high. You don't have as much of a term premium built in. So it, it can make the cost of housing over time um, more uh, lower. Um, 
Now, that being said, there are obviously environments where it's not as beneficial where, when we're kind of going through one at this point in time, right? So there's, there's pros and cons to, to having both structures. I will say um, from a consumer standpoint, yes, it's, it, it's nice that you're able to lock in a longer term mortgage um, in the US because of where rates were. Um, but then from an economic standpoint, that's also creating issues in the US in that you've got um, people are not moving. So now you have, because no one wants to move because they have a 3% mortgage rate for 30 years and if they move, they're gonna end up having to pay six, 7% on a mortgage. So you have a shortage of housing supply as a result of people not looking to move. Um, it makes interest rate, it makes policy, like interest rate policy uh, more difficult to have an effect impact. And we're kind of seeing that in the US a little bit to some extent. Um, and so, so I think generally there are pros and cons. I think in this environment, it seems like it's a good thing to be shifting into, to be have that option of a 30 year mortgage. But I think generally speaking, um, the structure of Canadian mortgages to have, do have some benefits over a longer period of time for consumers. It's fantastic to get your thoughts. I feel like you've answered so many of all of our questions. Sri, thank you very, very much for joining us here on a Friday and uh, taking us through the case for Canadian bonds. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.